Welcome back to the show that tells you, you are a quantum computer with free will, somehow instantiated on a microtubule network connected by laser beams. My name is Justin Riddle, and this is episode 30 of the Quantum Consciousness series. In this episode, I conducted an interview with Stuart Hameroff, the co-inventor of the orchestrated objective reduction model, and this interview took place on August 30th, 2022 in Tucson, Arizona. Now, the topic of this interview is current events in orchestrated objective reduction, or ORC-OR. So if you find that you need a little bit more background on what this theory is all about, I recommend you check out episodes 13 and 14 of this series, which cover this theory pretty extensively. Now, the interview has four different parts to it. In the first part, uh, Stuart talks about a recently submitted study that finds evidence of long-range quantum coherence in microtubules. The second part is a unpublished data set in which the authors find evidence of coherent and sustained photon emission from microtubules over the course of multiple seconds. A review article by Stewart looking at hierarchical consciousness and the role that microtubules play in biology contributing to higher scale and lower scale activity. And finally, Stewart responds to a recent controversy uh, surrounding his model with uh, Roger Penrose in which some authors claim that they conducted an experiment that has disproven the so-called Diossi-Penrose objective reduction model of consciousness. And if you like what you hear today, then please like this video, subscribe to this channel, leave a comment below, or for the audio listener, write a review. Join me inside the mystery of numbers. Come and huff a metaphysical Zero concepts become objects and then become quantum. Join us for an episode of quantum consciousness. Okay, welcome back to the show. Uh, I'm Justin Riddle. I'm sitting here with Stuart Hammeroff. And yeah, really excited to be having a chat with you about sort of current events in orchestrated objective reduction and just kind of pick your brain on a couple questions that I've been thinking about and just kind of want to hear updates on how you're doing. It's good to see you. First of all, Justin, it's been a while. I've known you quite a few years now. You were doing the uh, quantum consciousness course at UC Berkeley, which was an impressive feat in and of itself, and you had me me there, and you were talking about my stuff. I appreciate that. You've uh, been in this uh, field, uh, which I think is becoming more and more popular, more and more uh, mainstream, even. So, congratulations to you and everybody in this field. I think it's uh, it's blossoming. Yeah, thanks a lot, Stu. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a long run. Known you for I think almost ten years now. So yeah, it's been good. Love quantum consciousness. Changed my life. Um, yeah. A lot of this uh, series has been inspired by a lot of your work, obviously. So, yeah, excited to check in. Okay, so I want to start off by talking about this new paper that just came out on microtubules. I think it's on BioArchive right now, probably submitted at some journal. Um, yeah, a, could you give us a rundown? Well, it's yeah. been submitted to a very good journal. But um, the story is that uh, uh, a few years ago, Templeton had this project, Accelerating Research in Consciousness, which uh, the first uh, the first go was uh, adversarial collaborations, where they tried to get proponents of two different theories to come together and design an experiment that would falsify one or the other. And uh, there are a number of these going on, and they tend to be uh, pretty large scale, expensive 
$5 million projects each. And there's three or four or five of them going on. And we tried to develop a, a common experiment with uh, IIT. So uh, we had uh, Julio Tononi and Christoph Koch uh, here in Tucson. And we had proponents of OR, including Roger and uh, Roger Penrose, myself, and uh, uh, Jack Jasinski, Honorbon Bandipati, Jay Sanguinetti, and some others. And uh, we met and uh, we couldn't really come to a, uh, a common denominator. To, to mm. a, I personally don't see how IIT is falsifiable, but uh, other people say it is. And uh, I, so I was suggesting trying to falsify OR, and if we falsified ourselves, then they could, you know, the field would be wide open to them. Um, but what they wanted to do was to do uh, was to do what we wound up doing, which I'm going to tell you about in a second, but inside mm. a live animal in an awake monkey, and then see effect of anesthesia. So uh, I didn't think that was feasible and and nor humane. And uh, so that didn't work. But uh, Templeton wound up funding us to do the specific projects that we did. So I'm now going to tell you about them. So what we wanted to do was to, number one, two things, identify and show quantum effects in microtubules, which could support ORCOR. And if we found them, then show that, that they went away with anesthesia, that would suggest that they are relevant to consciousness. And in fact, I, in a publication in Cognitive Neuroscience called uh, Orkowar is the most uh, complete and most easily falsifiable theory of consciousness. I said, uh, if, we, uh, if we cannot show quantum effects in microtubules, or if we show them and they're not sensitive, inhibited by anesthesia, mm-hmm. then Orkowar will be falsified. And uh, Roger was a little uh, taken aback by that. He said, uh, you're putting all your eggs and my eggs in one basket. <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah, but he said, because it could be some other quantum mechanism other than what you're testing. And um, I said, well, yeah, that was a good point. And uh, so I started to worry, but uh, fortunately it turned out uh, okay. And so what we did was uh, we asked, I asked Jack Tosinski, who's a biophysicist, to, mm-hmm. to uh, get in touch with uh, the best labs in, available to do the kind of experiment we needed to do which turned out to be quantum optical experiments in, in individual microtubules. And so he mm-hmm. got a hold of Greg Scholes at Princeton. And Greg uh, has been a leading uh, experimentalist in quantum biology uh, since its inception, you know, mm-hmm. 20, 30 years ago. I uh, know, uh, well, less than that. Really 2006, the field with, with photosynthesis, uh, quantum mm-hmm. coherence. Mm-hmm. So, but he's been involved in that. He's been involved in, in, in all the studies. So he agreed. And uh, uh, Arak Kalra, who was a, uh, a graduate student of, of uh, Jack's at University of Alberta, went to Princeton for a postdoc and did these experiments. And uh, what they did was uh, tryptophan fluorescence lifetimes. So tryptophan is an amino, an amino acid inside uh, tubulin and other proteins. And it has uh, an aromatic ring, an indole ring. So a five and a six fused together. Same ring that's found in pretty much all psychedelics, TMT, uh, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, psilocybin, LSD, et cetera. And also serotonin and um, uh, you know psychoactive molecules in general. And are the kind of molecules that support quantum optical effects and uh, are isolated from the environment. They're inside the protein, getting away from the water. So they kind of solve the problem of the brain's too warm, wet, and noisy because they're definitely not wet because uh, oil and water uh, don't mix and they're basically oil-like molecules. So inside the proteins, which are inside the cell, are these channels and microtubules of aromatic rings, Mm -hmm. pi electron Mm -hmm. resonance Mm -hmm. clouds, which support uh, quantum optical effects such as fluorescence, uh, phosphorescence, uh, super radiance, uh, exciton propagation, 
and things like that. So, so question like, so in these, in these channels, there is like photons being emitted and being transferred. Cause I always thought about this as like electron resonance primarily. So yeah. How does well, that... this is exactly where the electrons and the photons get together. Mm -hmm. Because if you have an electron cloud, like in a, a tryptophan, if you excite it by like hitting it with a UV photon, you get yeah. an excited state and that goes into an excited electron state. And then when it drops down after a period it of time, the, the fluorescence lifetime drops back down, it gives off another photon, mm -hmm. which is lower energy. And that's called fluorescence. So we know that if we hit it with UV at around 280 or 300, it will emit at uh, 340 or something like that. And you can, and that's called fluorescence. And you can measure the time it takes. And then you can see what happens to that 340 mm -hmm. photon. So um, you can raise the question, well, is this biological? Because are there UV photons in the brain? And uh, we don't know. Uh, mitochondria probably do make uh, UV photons. Whether there's enough of them to uh, um, to drive uh, uh, consciousness or, or, or quantum processes uh, is unclear. It could be. But we know that there are also lower energy photons. So this is a place to start. And, uh, you know, because it's starting from a well-documented well uh, uh, methodology. So um, first of all, uh, uh, Arad and Greg uh, tested uh, tryptophan fluorescence lifetimes in, in individual uh, tubulins and then in microtubules. And uh, then they used a label called AMCA, which absorbs the, like the 340 nanometer and gives it, uh, gives it off at an even lower wavelength. So uh, what happens is that uh, it, there's propagation of excitonic energy, a quantum particle, along the microtubule to reach the AMCA. Mm. So we could, we could, by adjusting the concentration of the AMCA, uh, we knew we could uh, uh, estimate how far apart they were. So the fewer they were, the farther apart they were. And if you still, and, and as you, as you um, made them farther and farther apart, if you still got this uh, uh, exciton transfer, that tells you the uh, quantum exciton is propagating along the microtubules. And it turns out they do for about, uh, eight uh, uh, tubulins, which is about uh, 60 uh, nanometers. So that's a really long, uh, long ways. Yeah. So is this like an estimation for how long or how far quantum coherence can be sustained or, or propagated? Or This would be a minimum because the, mm, okay. you don't know what else is going to happen. But yes, yeah. it just shows propagation of a quantum process, a quantum entity, an exciton in this case, gotcha. uh, which in photosynthesis goes to one protein. Uh, to, to reach the chemical center. But in, in a microtubule, it goes to one tubule and then another tubule and then another tubule and mm -hmm. it can go uh, mm -hmm. through the length of a microtubule, which could be uh, mesoscopic or macroscopic. Yeah, so it yeah, leads yeah. to the possibility of long range uh, 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 quantum processes and communication of some sort. So, um, so we were able to show that, or Arad and Greg were able to show that. And, uh, and and show this uh, propagating electronic energy or or exciton diffusion, and uh, and then they put it they added anesthesia of two different types. Mm. Uh, one was uh, the gas anesthetic isofluorine, but we didn't use it in the gas phase. We we hope to do that in the future, but we, like just a it, it starts as a liquid, then you vaporize it. So but you start with the liquid, you put a little aliquot in, and it's it, it, it you you see an effect, and it inhibited the these exciton the, the transfer the fusion, yeah. yeah so the electron energy transfer was diminished and mm. we did it with another anesthetic etomidate which is uh, a soluble anesthetic and that also did the same thing so two completely different types of anesthetic a gas and a soluble one they both had the same effect and they both put people to sleep or any animals to sleep mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so uh that was quite an exciting finding um 
the conclusion in the paper was that uh, they didn't go, uh, uh, we didn't go too far into uh, relating this to consciousness or ORCA OR, um, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, because the, it, it's, a, it's a finding in and of itself. And, uh, you know, uh, we're, it's going to a fairly conservative journal and, uh, you know, the references are there, people can figure it out and I'll sure talk about it. Uh, uh, once it's out, so it, it's it's being uh, it's been submitted, and uh, in the meantime, it's on the archive, and you can post the uh, post the link. Yeah, I'll post the link. Yeah, for sure. All right, so I wanted to take a moment to really just spell out what this study was really all about. Um, so just to kind of set the stage, in 2007, there was this landmark paper that showed that within these photosynthetic proteins, there was a coherent transfer of energy within the protein between these different light-sensitive molecules where the energy from that photon absorption was transferred to this reaction center within the protein. And this is really foundational for the process of photosynthesis. And so this really shook up uh, the field and you know, there's a lot of commentary about this paper. And this was really the sort of smoking gun experiment that demonstrated that quantum effects do play a role in biological function. And so the study that Stewart has been talking about is essentially discussing the same mechanism where in these amino acids that are sensitive to light, they will, within these aromatic rings, there's these electron clouds that are distributed And as light comes in, these electron clouds will jump up to a higher energy level as they absorb this photon. And then they will transfer this energy to other uh, sensitive amino acids within the protein. And this is a way of transferring coherent energy within the protein. And so essentially what this experiment is demonstrating is the same exact type of process involved in quantum photosynthesis is happening in the tubulin of microtubules. And more so because the lattice of the microtubule is so carefully organized and it has this crystalline kind of structure to it, they find evidence that not only is this coherent transfer of energy occurring within a single protein, but it's actually able to go between proteins And more so, they find evidence that it's traveling over at least six tubulin. They argue it's on the order of 6.6 nanometers at a very minimum. Um, And so what this means is that this is sort of extending the findings of this previous quantum uh, photosynthesis study and suggesting a much more long-range transfer of energy and of quantum coherence or some sort of connection beyond multiple, multiple proteins within the microtubule. And why this is highly relevant to the orchestrated objective reduction model is that there needs to be some mechanism of creating long distance quantum coherence within these microtubules. And so in the Hameroff-Penrose model, they argue that there's these topological quantum bits where you have a quantum coherence system particularly these tryptophan amino acids within the core of these tubulin proteins, and they form a network across many tubulin to create these channels of quantum coherence. 
And then the microtubule viewed as a whole will have many of these different quantum coherent channels running through it. And then those can act as basically the quantum bits where you can imagine the energy transfer is happening in one direction or the other. And then you hold these different energy transfer directions in superposition. And then you have the foundation of a quantum bit. And by having many of these different channels, you can have many quantum bits. And if you're able to entangle those together, then now you have the creation of a quantum computer within a microtubule, right? And so just as exciting as this quantum photosynthesis study was back in 2007, if this study gets accepted, particularly at a you know high impact journal, this study has the potential to make as big of a splash as that one. Of course, the first study is always, you know, maybe the, the most interesting and profound, but this one does a, a good job of really extending that finding over a much greater spatial extent. And so this has been sort of the main criticism against orchestrated objective reduction is that you're not able to have long distance sustained quantum coherence and so this study might be some real empirical evidence in support that this is actually biologically feasible. All right, back to the interview. So the Princeton, uh, the Princeton group uh, did this, and that, that paper has mm. been submitted on the aircraft. There's another, uh, the other half of the project, this two-year uh, project from Templeton, was done at the University of Central Florida in the mm. laboratory of uh, Aristide Degaryu, who is a uh, quantum optics guy. And uh, uh, this is also very, very interesting. So he did a very similar thing, except he hit the, hit the microtubules with lower energy photons, not UV, uh, more mm -hmm. in the visible range, mm -hmm. which are apparently available in, in cells. It turns out that reactive oxidative species uh, and mitochondria give off, uh, give off photons. So it's not really dark in there. There's some photons uh, running around. And the question is, are they just kind of random noise or random uh, byproducts? Or are they functional? Do they have something to do with signaling or correlation, quantum correlation, mm -hmm. uh, or, mm -hmm. or, or even consciousness? So what Aristide found was that hitting a microtubule with, with one vis uh, visible photon uh, caused the microtubule to give off uh, lower energy photons for up, up to a second, a second or more, which is a really long time because this is a single pulse photon. And the microtubule mm -hmm. kind of chimed. Chime would be... Uh, sound but this is optically yeah, yeah, giving yeah. off a cascade of photons for like a second mm. and that uh he calls that delayed luminescence and he discovered this a few years ago and uh we're trying to figure out what it means uh it it's could be uh related to triplet states of the excited electron states the trip fans uh and the other aromatic rings uh it it could it could be uh, something called super radiance and super mm. radiance is a quantum effect it's actually subradiance, and when it reaches a threshold uh, super radiance, and uh, this gives off prolonged uh, uh, light for like a second or more. And uh, uh, Travis Craddock, one of our collaborators uh, mm -hmm. on the project, had done a theoretical study, uh, a theoretical modeling of microtubules with uh, uh, photons showing the super radiant effect theoretically. So he's, he had already done the theory. And the bottom line is that, uh, that all the tryptophans over a, a range of basically the wavelength of a photon, like 480 nanometers. Uh, so there's uh, 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 60 tubulins uh, times 13 times eight tryptophans 
there's a lot of tryptophan in that uh, mm-hmm. cylinder mm-hmm. portion of a microtubule. And what he uh, illustrated was that a, a, the photon actually gets stuck, gets trapped, and, be, and is kind of enveloping, wrapped around the uh, microtubule. And, uh, and that this phenomenon of super radiance. And it's a quantum optical effect. And ironically, in the 90s, uh, Mari Jibu, and uh, you knew this, you knew yeah, what yeah, yeah, yeah. Mari yeah. Jibu and Kunio Yasui, two Japanese people, along mm. with uh, Carl Prebrum, uh, yeah. Scott Hagen, and myself wrote a paper uh, in biosystems about uh, super radiance and microtubules. Now, that was a mechanism, the mechanism for that was different. It was involved the water molecules in the hollow core of the microtubule okay. yeah. uh, being, uh, being oscillated coherently by frola coherent dynamics in the microtubule. And what we're thinking is more the frolic coherence in the microtubules are causing the super radiance. Now, it, it could, yeah. there could be something interesting in the uh, atomic, uh, in the water core too. And Honor Bonny probably thinks so also. Yeah, I should have some of that, yeah. Right, but, um, but uh, we're, we're thinking of the tryptophans in the tubular walls as being the, the source of the super radiance. So, uh, okay, so he uh, again showed super radiance in microtubules, then added isoflurane, and etomidate in both cases the uh delayed luminescence superannuates went away or was inhibited mm. markedly mm. and the same two anesthetics so we have two different examples of two different quantum optical effects in microtubules two different laboratories um both showing quantum optical effects in microtubules uh which are inhibited by anesthesia so this suggests that this quantum optical effect might have something to do with uh consciousness Okay, so are both those experiments in that bioarchive paper, or no, these only are two the first separate yeah. projects? Second one uh, is still being uh, is still uh, being worked yeah. on and hasn't been submitted yet. Okay, cool. But the results were submitted were presented. Uh, RSD presented them at the BAMF conference. So, so oh, gotcha. So yeah, what is the purpose of the super radiance? Is this like a mechanism for extending coherence within a microtubule, or is the are the photons encoding information in some way and and I mean, my, my mind goes to, you know, the challenge of getting quantum information across microtubules or within a network. Could this be some signaling mechanism to go across a network? Yeah, yeah. we have to be careful about the word signaling because of, you know, Alice mm. and Bob and all that. But I think it's yeah, it's yeah, a way yeah. of coherence and entanglement uh, along a microtubule, among microtubules within a neuron and uh, between and among microtubules of different neurons, even throughout the whole brain. So mm-hmm. I think it's it's a way of entanglement and coherence, which is a form of superposition. So uh, then the question is, okay, well, uh, if we go go to ORCOR, you need uh, collapse of the wave function. Mm-hmm. So the superposition must uh, reach a threshold. And for example, the threshold uh, suggested by Roger, uh, where collapse uh, OR occurs at time t equals h bar over e sub g. So uh, h bar is the Planck-Dirac constant, and e sub g is the gravitational self-energy of the mass that's involved. Uh, the, the amount of energy required to pull something apart from itself, so it's sitting literally next to each other or, or mm-hmm. partially separate or completely separated. And uh, we had actually calculated that for uh, in three different ways back in 96 in our first paper and showed that uh, the dominant effect was uh, superposition separation at the level of the atomic nuclei, for example, carbon in the rings, uh, literally beside themselves. So by uh, their radius and so superposition separation or smearing of uh, 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 femtometers, 10 to the minus 15 uh, meters. So very, very small, uh, but uh, uh, 
that that gives you enough gravitational self energy to reach a threshold. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is that we're talking about quantum optical effects in yeah. the electrons and the electron mass is very small. So that doesn't give you enough E sub G. So you have to couple to the uh, to the nucleus. And uh, there are a couple of ways that this could happen. This is, we haven't studied this yet, but theoretically looking ahead, uh, we've always thought it could be the the uh, Mossbauer effect, where the where the movement of, of an electron by say a nanometer moves its nucleus by a femtometer, mm. or or uh, its nucleus. So that would be perfect uh, if if that's what it is. Although there are some issues with that because it seems record gamma radiation, whether that's there or not. But it, it, all, it could also have something to do with spin. Uh, Christoph Simon was at the Banff conference and he was talking about uh, radical ion pair coupling between an electron spin and a nuclear spin, and that could mm. do it. And uh, in fact, that's a, that's a whole other area that we need to look at. And, and that might uh, uh, create a whole uh, quantum optical channel through microtubules throughout the whole brain even. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, this is a very exciting area. And uh, uh, we will need to connect the electron uh, quantum optical effects with the nuclear displacement. All right, so this next study is all about super radiance. So I wanna kind of take a step back and just describe super radiance, at least to my understanding. So as we know, um, atoms or molecules will occupy different energy levels. And as they move up energy levels, they are absorbing photons. And when they move down energy levels, they are emitting photons. So if you have sort of a cluster of atoms and they're all at various energy levels and there's photons in the environment that are being absorbed and emitted, you would expect that with a casual glance, you'd have a bunch of chaotic emission of photons, absorption here and there. And so super radiance is the observation that there is a mass level of absorption or in this case emission of photons that is happening simultaneously so there's also super absorption where there's a mass absorbing and super radiance where there's a mass emission and so the authors of this study are claiming that they found a sort of mass emission of photons across these microtubules and so what this is indicative of is it suggests that there's some quantum coherence between all the parts of the microtubule that are simultaneously emitting these photons, right? So if it was happening chaotically, we would not see this coherent emission. We would just see sporadic um, sort of emissions happening chaotically. Now, there's a couple different ways that this can be happening. And Stuart talks about two particular ways um, one of them is really spelled out in this study by Mary Jibu. And in this study, they talk about the water molecules in the core of the microtubule. And so in the core of the microtubule, it's a very small space. And so all of these water molecules are so tightly, densely packed within the core of the microtubule that they form very strong bonds with each other. And instead of imagining this as like a soup with a bunch of water molecules bumping into each other, even though it's at room temperature, they're crammed into such a tight space that they form very strong bonds with each other and they have sort of a crystalline lattice structure in and of themselves. So in the Mary Jibu model, there is thermal energy, basically heat in the environment, 
and this is heating up these water molecules and pushing them into higher and higher energy states and then you'll have these coherent moments where the water molecules drop down to a lower energy level emit photons and this emission is happening in a coherent way where many water molecules will go through a super radiance of photon emission and this is basically theorized to occur because they're forming this tight crystalline lattice within the core of the microtubules and they further suggest that because of the geometric constraints of the microtubule the photons that are emitted are sort of selected to be within a particular wavelength and so the wavelength of the photons because it is selected to fit within this microtubule core, now if you have coherent emission of photons with the same wavelength, that is the basis for a laser, where a laser is when you have photons that have the same wavelength and they form this sort of quantum coherent um, beam of light, which we refer to as a laser. So basically, this is kind of a wild uh, declaration, if you will, or a wild theory where you essentially have thermal chaotic energy heating up these water molecules, creating this super radiant coherent emission of light, which then forms a laser within the core of the microtubule. And Stewart says that this photon will hang around the microtubule. And I don't really know uh, what to do with that information. But I think an interesting proposition here is that if this light is coherently emitted from the microtubule, this could be a basis of many different microtubules linking up together. So you can imagine a microtubule emitting a laser beam from its core, and then there's other microtubules surrounding it, and they can receive those coherent beams of light and this could be a basis for essentially entangling the activity between multiple microtubules. So in the previous section, we were talking about how tubulin can become coherent and build you know, these topological qubits that extend across an entire microtubule. But then the question is, how do we get something bigger than a single microtubule in the quantum domain? And so maybe these coherent light emissions could be a way of forming sort of a laser grid of microtubules that are quantum coherent, they're entangled with each other. And in previous episodes, I was talking about this need to create entangled pairs. If you wanna perform quantum computations, a major function that you need to perform is to entangle many quantum bits into your quantum computer and so potentially this is a biological mechanism for creating larger, more macroscopic quantum computers through the entanglement of these many different microtubules. Now the findings discussed in this section um, as well are some findings that it appears that there is a emission of light from the tubulin from the microtubule lattice itself. So this is sort of a different mechanism from the Jibu mechanism but similar to that previous study, you have an absorption and emission of photons within the tubulin, within the microtubules. And this, once again, is a mechanism for entangling multiple um, tubulin to each other and sort of creating a quantum computer out of these many different quantum bits. So 
Very similar mechanism, but uh, it seems like Stewart is leaning more so towards this kind of tubulin focused photon emission as a means of entanglement, more so than this sort of like early 90s model of these lasers within the core of microtubules. One final thing which I want to bring up here, which I haven't heard Stuart talk about in a while, but he has previously talked about these uh, centrioles. And centrioles are these mega bundles where they're a tube composed of many microtubules. And what's very bizarre and interesting about these um, mega microtubule structures is that you always find two centrioles and these centrioles are organized in a, in a right angle formation. So one of them is perpendicular to the other. And if you look at any of your old diagrams of mitosis or meiosis, where you have cells that are separating and pulling DNA apart. That pulling and that separating is performed by microtubules, but also there's these bizarre control hubs at either end, these centrioles, these mega microtubule bundles, which seem to be orchestrating the whole process. And if there's disruption to these centrioles, you have a disruption to the cell division process. And one question is, what are these centrioles doing? And in previous work, Stewart has suggested that the hollow core of the centrioles nicely fits within the visible and UV light spectrum, where maybe the centrioles are sort of orienting themselves to coherent photon emissions within the cell. And so if light emission is playing a major role in biological function, particularly in microtubules, could it be that these centrioles are somehow becoming entangled with these microtubules and acting as some sort of control hub during the cell division processes? So this is a little bit beyond the scope of the conversation um, of this interview, but something to think about. Uh, it seems like, like we need an explanation for these megatubes and the fact that they're oriented perpendicular gives them sort of a nice optical property where they're kind of searching a wider space and they're able to absorb information in the form of light or as Stuart would caution us, quantum information or some sort of entangling, not the digital transfer of information like we might be inclined to think about. And so potentially there's some deeper, more interesting role going on with centrioles uh, if there's this massive light-based entanglement network in the brain and in our cells, um, this might be another another clue to that puzzle. All right, back to the interview. Gotcha. So then, like the the role of of the optics in that is that that's sort of like creating entangled pairs across microtubules and then potentially across the network. Yes, and so, also allows the microtubule to interact with with the environment, uh, mm. including the synapse and. Uh, and other microtubules and, and the chemical milieu and everything uh, to, to interface. Now, the problem with any quantum computer, whether it's a microtubule as we propose, or whether it's something uh, in Google's basement or, or something like that where they're building, where uh, there they have to do it at absolute uh, uh, zero temperature. Mm -hmm. But um, you have to, uh, at some point, collapse to the solution. You have multiple possibilities, quantum bits, uh, of, of one and zero, which collapse to one or zero. So what's the collapse mechanism? And, uh, you know, in quantum computers, they generally uh, either 
make a measurement which forces a, a collapse mm -hmm. uh, or it decoheres or something. Now, in, in our proposal, the collapse occurs by Rogers objective reduction by T equals H bar over E sub G, as I said. And, uh, and that gives you a moment of experience. So uh, mm -hmm. if it's in a random microenvironment in the table or the air or other mm -hmm. cells, uh, it's, it's, uh, these moments are, have experience but are isolated and random, lack memory, lack meaning. And so they come and go and nobody knows the difference. Mm -hmm. uh, they could be here, there and everywhere, kind of all around us. Now this seems bizarre, but when you think about panpsychism, where everything has a little dollop of, of experience, it's pretty much the same thing. But with panpsychism, where it's a property of matter, then you have the combination problem. How do you get all these individual ones into the kind of unified consciousness we have? Now, if instead of it being a property of matter, it's a collapse, which can be of various scales, but as mm. T goes up and down, the E sub G goes down and up, then you can have a, a, a variety of events uh, that are fused together and in, and uh, orchestrated and entangled. So you can have a very large E sub G with many, many tubulins that will collapse quite quickly, or you can have a small E sub G with a few tubulins that take a long, long time. I think over the course of evolution, brains have evolved so we can have larger and larger E sub G and faster and faster uh, uh, collapses. So, for example, um, our brains, we think uh, we probably have uh, 10 million orcawar events per second involving 10 to the 15th tubulins in the brain. Now, there's about 10 to the 20th tubulins in the brain. So we're using maybe a, a 10,000th of, uh, of uh, you know, the capacity. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas uh, a simple organism like a paramecium, which may or may not be conscious, might have consciousness uh, a few times a second, you know, a few times a minute. And uh, lower, lower uh, frequency, lower intensity, uh, kind of like a photon, lower intensity. So the, mm -hmm. the, the intensity of the experience would be much less and the, the capacity, the amount of information would be much less. So I think that explains how different cells can have these conscious moments, uh, but they're not like what happens in the brain where you can have 10 to the 15th tubulins entangled in one conscious moment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think, I think this kind of leads into the uh, hierarchical uh, question, right? So... Yeah, you have a recent paper on hierarchical consciousness of sorts, um, where the idea is that when we measure the brain activity, um, we see this kind of like resonance structure that goes from the very fast to the very slow. Presumably, the slower um, activity patterns are much you know wider. They include more of the brain. So yeah, I guess could you comment on yeah, like like how would our experience sort of in this like slow domain, you know, I feel like our thoughts are not necessarily occurring at a million times per second. No, I mean, maybe our experience is that fast, but like my thought processes are like very, I don't know, like sub second perhaps, but not much yeah. faster than that. So yeah, how would that- Yeah, cognitive epochs, a uh, few mm -hmm. hundred milliseconds, libits 500 milliseconds, evoke potential, yeah, yeah. 300 milliseconds, uh, gamma synchrony at 25 milliseconds, so forth. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, the brain seems to operate in the EEG range, roughly. So many people have had the idea that the brain is a hierarchical system. Mm -hmm. And uh, I should say also that this whole thing, kind of stepping back, makes the brain more like a hierarchical, kind of like in consciousness, more like music than a computation. So I think mm -hmm. the idea that the brain is a computer, a complex computer of simple neurons, really fails because number one, neurons aren't that simple. And then you have to yeah. explain how paramecium can be so, yeah, yeah, so yeah. clever. And, uh, and 
and but but then you have the problem of the, the difference in, in frequencies and scales. So um, a number of people have had the idea of a hierarchy in the brain starting from the level of neurons mm -hmm. and getting larger and larger. Uh, uh, Baiju He and Marcus Rakeley years ago had this uh, sc scale invariant fractal-like model starting from individual neurons mm -hmm. uh, in within the EEG, so different levels of the EEG. And um, and that's great going upward, but they didn't go downward. And I think if you go downward, meaning smaller, faster, deeper in, into the microtubules, into the quantum realm, uh, there's a, there's 15 orders of magnitude of activity uh, mm -hmm. inside the neuron into the microtubules. And uh, this was shown by Anurban Bandyapadye uh, at uh, National Institute of Material Sciences in Scuba uh, around 2009, 2010 initially. And uh, what he found, so he was looking at individual microtubules or tubulins or microtubules inside neurons with nanoprobes. And he found, um, so if you take one microtubule and put four probes on it and use two to stimulate and two to record, uh, mm -hmm. when you start off and just put DC current in, the uh, microtubule is, is an insulator. There's no current flow at all. But if you use alternating current and sweep the, sweep the frequency, you'll find uh, particular frequencies where mm -hmm. there's ballistic conductance, which means probably quantum, except for the classical interface between the electrode and the, and the protein. So, um, uh, and he found that at uh, and he found at every three orders of magnitude, in from terahertz, which is ten to the twelfth, ten to the fifteenth, to gigahertz, ten to the ninth, to megahertz, ten to the sixth, to kilohertz, ten to the three, and down to hertz. So every three orders of magnitude, I think it was maybe every 2.7 orders of magnitude, he got the self-similar pattern of conductance. When if you, and if you looked at that, that morphology of that pattern, it was a triplet of triplets. So there was three peaks and in each peak were three peaks. And this triplet of triplets shows up uh, every few orders of magnitude, kind of like a fractal or a hologram mm -hmm. maybe. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think this is highly significant. You know, we, can't, we haven't yeah. figured out totally what it means yet, but I think it's, it's a big clue. So um, uh, that that would take a hierarchy from uh, you know from the level of the whole brain to large networks to small networks to neurons, and then inside the neurons to microtubule bundles, to microtubules to tubulins to the pi electron resonance to the electrons and then down to the nuclei, yeah. uh, <clears throat> and then from there somehow uh, all the way down to the Planck scale we presume to Rogers uh, you know objective reduction. So mm -hmm. it suggests a hierarchy from, uh, you know, brain-wide activities all the way down to the fine scale structure of the universe, which is appealing for a number of reasons, uh, including it kind of says we're literally grounded to the structure of the universe, mm -hmm. spiritual implications, and it kind of says that, you know, we're, part, we're connected, we're part of the universe, connected to space-time and also to each other because uh, everybody's entangled in some, in some mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's so many amazing implications of this, right? Just like the fact that there's so much subconscious unconscious processes you know kind of beneath our level yeah. of, of awareness yeah. i think one challenge here is like where do you get that unity of experience you know so we have this like profound sense of being a single individual being a self how does that emerge you know one from like this fractal you know and then two you know even in the the microtubule model there's so many like pockets of of these microtubule networks you know are we one particular network in our brains or are we moving around in our brains like yeah how do we get a single self out of out of the fractal and then out of this like massive brain yeah that's a good question yeah first let me say that uh you alluded to this question earlier and i didn't answer it but how do we mm. get from the very fast from the uh 
10 million per second to the cognitive epochs at mm -hmm. a couple per second. And uh, we think that's through uh, negative resonance or interference patterns, kind of like mm -hmm. in music where you have, if you have uh, two instruments that are just slightly off, they're going to give a beat. And yeah. sometimes musicians use this intentionally. And, but uh, but you, get, you get interference beats at a much, much slower frequency. And it could be that EEG, for, uh, for example, is a beat frequency of much faster mm -hmm. oscillations going on in microtubules. Because even after all these years, we don't really know the origin of the EEG or its true significance. True. And uh, the latest evidence is that uh, it's, it's, it's not just uh, you know, from zero hertz to a couple hundred hertz, but much, much faster. And Honorbon, uh, again, is leading the way here, and he has he has been able to show gigahertz and megahertz oscillations from the scalp in EEG in what he calls the dodecagram, rather than the EEG, it's the DDG. The DDG stands for dodecagram, which is 12, mm. because there are 12 orders of magnitude going downward from yeah, the neuron yeah. that he can detect. Uh, from the scalp, you can only get the gigahertz, but... Um, probably terahertz eventually. And we know if, if you get inside, you can, you can find terahertz. Yeah, a couple questions on this. So, I mean, the way that we typically think about EEG is that it's like the collective action of many, many neurons or, you know, populations acting coherently. If you were mm -hmm. to measure like gigahertz or megahertz signals from the brain, does that mean that there's coherent megahertz activity at like a very meso or macro scale to like generate something that you could record? Uh, yeah, it's not necessarily the whole brain all the time mm -hmm. uh, because he's, for example, Audubon says sometimes you can get it from here and sometimes it gets it from here. So it could be moving around. Mm -hmm. And I think that's fine. Consciousness may be a quantum process yeah. moving around the brain because if you're talking about visual consciousness, it's it's the visual system, you're talking mm -hmm. about auditory, but, <laughs> but then they entangle with each other. So we have these integrated or orchestrated scenes of multimodal uh, sensory inputs plus your inner thoughts and your memory mm -hmm, et cetera et cetera mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that it gets uh, orchestrated I, I hesitate to use the word integrate because integrate integrated <laughs> fires what neurons do it's also integrated information theory but this is quite different so orchestration is I prefer because it's the metaphor would be uh, the protoconscious events that are occurring here there and everywhere like if you go to the symphony, the uh, musicians are tuning their instruments. So mm. you hear this, eh, eh, you hear all these notes and tones. It's it's noise. It's a cacophony. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's slightly annoying. But uh, And then they begin to play Brahms or Beethoven or the Beatles mm -hmm. or whatever. And it's music. And I think what the microtubules do is turn the random uh, tones and notes into something more like music. Except there's no yeah. conductor. There's no one guy doing that. It's more like a jam session or jazz or improv or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay. More questions on, on this topic. Um, yeah. So the, the beat frequency model for the microtubules, right? Would, would that be basically suggesting that cognition, these like cognitive epochs, they're like these beats off of these, these microtubule scale processes to me, like, I, I guess I just worry that that feels a little like emergent, you know, that our cognition is emergent and it, it's not it kind of has like an essence of like epiphenomenalism in a way. If it's if it's a beat, do you, do you kind of get what I'm saying? Or, um, or do well, you I don't like epiphenomenalism. But well, I yeah, neither do I. I think we're on the same page with that. I don't, <laughs> I don't think this is epiphenomenal. Epiphenomenal yeah. means that consciousness comes after the fact and has no causal causal action. Mm -hmm. Now, to get around that problem, you need backward time effects. That's kind of a separate issue. Because mm -hmm. let's say we're talking and, and you say something and I answer back immediately. If 
someone were to measure my brain for the activity correlating with what you said as I'm processing it, I will have already responded to you. So yeah. the, the party line in neuroscience and philosophy is that uh, my unconscious autopilot responded and uh, I had this uh, false illusion after the fact that I was in conscious control. Mm -hmm. This is what Dan Dennett mm -hmm. says, for example. Consciousness uh, comes too late and it, yeah. it's after the fact. But uh, with backward time effects, uh, which for which there's evidence going back to Libet 1979 mm -hmm. and many, many other experiments, uh, it looks like there can be some backward time effect. And this is precisely what Roger has been working on for the last couple of years. He's, in fact, he talked mm -hmm. about this 2016, 2018, uh, Tucson conference, and then again, 2020, and he's been evolving this. And But he's never published it uh, until currently. He has a chapter in a book called The Quantum Mechanics and Consciousness, edited by Shan Gao, a Chinese quantum mm -hmm. physicist. And uh, it, uh, Oxford Press, it's coming out very soon. And uh, Roger has a chapter about this backward time effect. I have a chapter about the quantum biology mm -hmm. of consciousness. And other notables include Chalmers, Dave Chalmers and Kelvin McQueen, who have the lead article about their theory of, of basically neo-von Neumannism, I would call it, where consciousness causes collapse. So it's kind of a dualist position that consciousness comes from somewhere else and causes collapse of the wave function. How it causes collapse, I don't know, and where it comes from and what it's doing out there uh, are unanswered. But they're happy being dualists. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I definitely want to cover that at some point <laughs> in the in the series. Um, yeah, so kind of, I don't want to like belabor this too much, but just, um, so in this backwards time referral like framework, so if it takes 200, 500 milliseconds, right, like in the Libitz paradigm to process this information, so th the idea is there's some sort of sustained quantum coherence over that 500 millisecond time frame, and then it's getting like backwards referred. So then wouldn't that imply that there is some aspect of the brain that's like sustaining like a wave function without collapse for 500 milliseconds and then could it be that there are genuine kind of slow quantum computers in the brain or does everything have to be happening at the megahertz scale you know well we know in delayed luminescence that uh, mm -hmm. you can have quantum states for a second in a microtubule okay so yeah. 500 milliseconds shouldn't be a problem and uh, particularly if if they're cool. if they're entangled with a whole bunch mm -hmm. of microtubules collectively, uh, uh, I, I think that could happen. Although, uh, uh, although on the other hand, I have to admit that um, you know we got away from that idea and went mm -hmm. to the ten megahertz to mm -hmm. avoid that. So mm -hmm. uh, that's a, that's a, it, it could be that it could be a sequence of uh, discrete collapses and and uh, and, and quantum states uh, reoccur. I have to think about that. That's but um, yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. And then like similar vein, right? If you have like a paramecium who's doing all this complex behavior, it seems like evolution is like moving to create slower and slower organisms. You know, like we're kind of slower than like a fly, which is like twitching and moving around super quick, you know. So it feels like like we're moving slower. And yet in the Orca R paradigm, like our conscious experience should be going faster, right? As we have more intense experiences. So yeah, I mean, maybe could it be that there's more unconscious processing in the lower animals and then like the conscious experience is happening less frequently, but then there still have kind of fast anatomical processes occurring, but then consciousness is slower. And then maybe there's like some sort of trade off <laughs> through evolution where or, or yeah, I yeah, do you have a comment on that or well, um, mm. if you go just by the size of the brain or the organism and the number of tubulins. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you can, and actually, I have this in the, in the paper you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where you have you put them on linearly, uh, you go from where we have like ten to the twentieth tubulins, but we probably only use ten to the fifteenth, mm-hmm. down to a uh, paramecium with maybe uh, a bit, you know, ten to the ninth or ten to the eighth tubulins, down to a plant with maybe uh, uh, even fewer, like a, mm-hmm. a few microtubules per cell in a plant. Uh, and and then you plot that versus the uh, uh, time or one over time the frequency of the uh, orco R events you get this linear uh, uh, linear correlation which means that like I said we might have 10 million conscious events per second uh, whereas a plant would only have maybe a couple per minute or something mm-hmm, like that mm-hmm. now you're talking about you know insects that are, they're active at a higher frequency but their behavior may be active uh, but their consciousness, their orco R events need not necessarily be faster mm-hmm. than In fact, they're almost for sure slower than ours. Mm-hmm. But we don't need to react that quickly, uh, uh, and we can't because we're larger. So it's the yeah, one yeah, trade-off is you get bigger, you get slower. Mm-hmm. All right, so at this part of the interview, I am so passionate about the models of hierarchical consciousness. Um, check out my previous uh, episode on hierarchical consciousness in this series, and I'll do an update on this model uh, very shortly. But essentially, I'm really trying to push Stuart on two fundamental questions that I have about orchestrated objective reduction. One is how do you get a unity of self? How do you get a single conscious experience from all of these microtubules and all these different pockets of the brain? Second, how do you explain the really slow nature of human thought and human action where maybe we have a really fast experience, but it appears that we have very slow cognition and very slow decision-making, perception. All of these processes occur at a very slow time frame. So when microtubules are the main substrate of quantum computation in the brain, it really is a challenge. How then do you explain the very slow nature of our experience And how do you scale up the quantum computational process to encompass such a large number of of microtubules that it would would reach some sort of unity of self? So in the orchestrated objective reduction model, Stewart talks about what he calls beat frequencies. And essentially, within the microtubule network, the collapse of the wave function is still occurring on the order of a million times per second in the megahertz range. So under their model, this would suggest that conscious experience is happening a million times per second. And the challenge is how does this then relate to these very slow forms of cognition? So he argues that there's sort of beats. As you have different pockets that are processing quantum information and collapsing, you'll have these emergent beats or these classical style interference patterns between these different systems, and this will give rise to these low frequency modes, right? So similar to like binaural beats, where you have two different really fast time scales, but they're separated by a lower hertz frequency, you'll have the emergence of that lower hertz. So for example, 1000 hertz interfering with 1005 hertz will give rise to a 5 hertz beat, right? And so that beat is present and measurable. But my question was, isn't this epiphenomenal then? All of this slow cognition 
seems to be an emergent property, it doesn't seem to be processing information at this scale really, right? The real information processing would be within the quantum computation happening a million times per second. And so if the processing is happening so much faster, the question is how do you get what they're talking about, which is backwards time referral? So they're also making the claim that as you're experiencing something in the moment, information is being processed into the future and then being referred backwards in time into the present moment to then have this rich experience. And you can check out the quantum time travel uh, episode of the series where I go into this in a lot more detail. But essentially the idea is that within a superposition, within the unitary evolution of the Schrodinger equation, time is reversible. However, once you have a collapse of the wave function, you've then disrupted that time reversibility and you have classical causality. So with successive collapses, you have the deterministic digital causal structure of the universe that we're very familiar with. And only within the superposition can you make time more fuzzy and have things be reversibly moving backwards and forwards in time. So I think a real challenge in the Orkawar model currently is if, if all quantum computations are happening at this one million times per second time scale, how then would you have time reversibility at the scale of 500 milliseconds? And I don't, I don't see a good answer currently within the model as, as posed. The solution would have to be, to my mind, that there needs to be lower frequency, slower quantum computations occurring within the brain, within biology. Um, and Stewart goes into this where in their earlier papers, they were entertaining this idea that there were these bigger, slower quantum computations happening on the order of milliseconds. But in more recent iterations of the model, everything's happening at this megahertz frequency. And so I think if you want to make the case that our experience is fundamentally real and happening, the idea that we're making decisions on the order or the time scale of multiple seconds or 500 milliseconds or even 100 milliseconds, I think you need a quantum computation that is sustained for that long, for that order of magnitude. And potentially in that delayed luminescence experiment, there is some evidence that you could create quantum computations or quantum coherence that's occurring at these slower time scales. But I think more work needs to be done. What I'm kind of looking for in the future is maybe a nesting or a coexistence of multiple quantum comp like quantum computational systems or multiple quantum computers within the brain simultaneously. So maybe the tubulin and these microtubule lattices are conducting quantum computation on the order of megahertz. Maybe, this is all speculative, the core within the microtubule is creating these coherent uh, photon emissions and there's some sort of like network of microtubules that is operating at a slower frequency. And maybe there's phenomenon at the level of cortical columns or populations of neurons which is sustaining quantum computations at even slower frequencies or slower rates. And so I think if you want to make the argument that free will is, is real and that there really is a decision process that you are contributing to, I think we need to engage with these slower scales. 
And it's a huge challenge, right? We're trying to make the argument that quantum mechanics makes a impact on biology at the scale of proteins, let alone the level of the entire brain, the level of multiple seconds or parts of a second, right? So in a way, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're trying to get to the end here of having super macro quantum computations in the brain. And we still need to make the case that there is micro quantum computations happening within the brain that are biologically meaningful. So that's what I'm looking for in the future. A um, lot of cool thoughts here and more, more to think about. All right, back to the interview. Yeah, why don't we pivot a little bit and talk about this uh, DOC Penrose controversy that, that came out recently. Um, and I, we had some comments on the channel asking about this. And uh, yeah, I, I've heard your response before, but yeah, maybe you could uh, just give a <laughs> well, give your uh, shtick on this. Yeah, uh, Roger and I have been writing up a, a response mm -hmm. and uh, I sent him uh, my my version a couple of times. And, and I think he's a little reluctant because I think my, my response is a little bit too harsh into uh, not aggressive, but maybe snotty. And uh, he, he doesn't like that. So uh, we're trying to reach a middle ground, or I may just publish it uh, referring to him, but without him as a co-author. Mm -hmm. So um, this study was sponsored, was funded by FQXI, Fundamental Questions Institute, which is a think tank that was founded by Max Tegmark, who was a famous critic of ours, who in, mm -hmm. in, 20, in 2000, uh, published a paper uh, where he calculated the decoherence time of a microtubule as 10 to the minus 13 seconds, way too fast for what we've been talking about. And uh, uh, he got in his equation for uh, the decoherence time, uh, he had the, there's a factor where, uh, where you separate of uh, superposition separation. So when you, you have superposition, something is separated from itself. We have a quantum bit of a one and zero. How far apart are they? And uh, uh, in our theory, as I mentioned earlier, it's the superposition separation is an atomic nucleus separated from itself, like in femtometers, 10 to the minus 15th meters. So and not very far apart at all. Mm -hmm. uh, Tegmark, uh, instead of using that, used uh, a, where he, he made up his own model of a soliton separated from itself along three uh, by three tubulins, so 24 nanometers. So seven orders of magnitude larger and since it was in the denominator, that made his decoherence time seven, seven orders of magnitude shorter. So when we corrected for that, we got from 10 to the minus 13 to 10 to the minus six, and we found two other mistakes that got down to 10 to the minus four. And coincidentally, uh, years later, Honorbaum found, found quantum coherence down to that level, 10 to the minus six, 10 to the minus fourth. Mm. So the theory seems to have been, uh, been uh, proven. So, uh, but that was that was a long time ago. But uh, um, a number of other people have criticized us, and uh, FQXI seems to be kind of an amalgamation of our critics. Uh, there's a lot of IIT. There's a lot of many worlds. Uh, there's a lot of Techmark and, and other people who, uh, you know, have, have a history of, of opposing us for for better for uh, for worse. So, anyway, um, the point of this was that um, objective reduction, Roger's basic idea that gives consciousness, which is the essence of it. I mean, I've been studying microtubules for 20 years, uh, thinking that they were the seat of consciousness, but didn't really have a handle on what consciousness actually was until I read his book, uh, which suggests the Emperor's New Mind, which suggested that uh, self-collapse of the, of the wave function due to quantum gravity uh, by this separation uh, would spontaneous collapse and give a moment of consciousness. So instead of consciousness causing collapse, as Chalmers and Kelvin McQueen are saying now, and von Neumann and Wigner said years ago, 
collapse occurs spontaneously and causes consciousness. So it puts consciousness squarely in science. You don't, there's no dualism. You don't need some mysterious thing coming to do it. And it explains, you know, how it could happen. Um, so Rogers uh, objective reduction theory and uh, is based, as I said, on T equals H bar over E sub G. And I remember distinctly uh, when we first started collaborating together, we got to the point where we needed this equation. And it was at the, uh, the 1994 Tucson conference, the first science of consciousness mm. conference. And I said, well, Roger, how do we, how do we get from, you know, the uh, gravitational self energy to the consciousness that he had, uh, here's, and he handed me a piece of paper. I think it might've been a napkin and it said that T equals H bar over E sub G. I'm like, T equals H bar. Okay. So he told me what H bar was. Well, I knew what it, maybe I did. And he explained E sub G is gravitational self energy. He explained to me how to calculate it. And that was the beginning of it all. So um, uh, that's his equation for objective reduction, which he published in uh, 1989. Well, I, I guess, I, I think he had the equation in his book, so maybe it wasn't that new, I just missed it. Anyway, it turns out after he had been working on this for a while that he discovered that a Hungarian guy named Diasi had a similar idea that he published earlier in Hungary in the earlier 80s. Mm, so um, being gracious, uh, Roger, you know, uh, acknowledged this and recognized it. And since Diasi published it first, he, start, he started referring to the idea of objective reduction by uh, T equals H bar over E sub G as Diasi Penrose gotcha. OR or DP theory or uh, DP OR. So, um, and that's, that's gone on for the last, you know, 10, 15 years or so. And um, however, uh, there's a key difference between the two. And, uh, uh, one is that Roger's idea is based in uh, gravitational, uh, you know, general relativity, basically, curvature of space time, whereas Diossi's is just dynamical uh, mathematics, basically. Uh, and uh, Rogers predicts proto-consciousness or consciousness. Diossi doesn't. And as far as what you can measure, Diossi predicted that each OR event would give, would radiate heat, would give us some kind of heat or, mm. or radiation that could be measured. And so... Um, he and some colleagues um, got funded from uh, Temple, not Templeton, sorry, FQXI, to do an experiment. Uh, and they did it under a mountain in Italy to avoid cosmic rays to measure, uh, look for radiation. And uh, uh, so they, they had this experiment going uh, two months. And if they found radiation, that would prove the Aussie OR and disprove Penrose OR. Well, they found no radiation. And so uh, at the end of it, you know, they could have concluded, they should have concluded that Penrose OR was proven, was validated, and Diasi OR was disproven, uh, which is what the results seem to show mm -hmm. uh, or, or showed. However, uh, in reporting the results, they really kind of avoided that conclusion, you know, like the big, the big conclusion, and talked around it. And, uh, and they had a follow-up second paper uh, that was more theory in, in analyzing the results. And uh, also uh, use that to, do, to attack ORC-OR. So what they said was, instead of saying, okay, the OR is wrong, they said, there's no radiation. Um, however, the, the radiation, going back to Diossi's uh, formula, uh, had uh, was dependent on the superposition separation distance. So, and the, the, the shorter this was, so the shortest, for example, being our model of an atomic nucleus uh, separated from itself just by its radius, so 10 minus 15 nanometers, uh, that would give off a lot of radiation. And if you spread out, if you uh, separated them even further, you smeared them, smeared them out, 
uh, farther and farther, you get less and less radiation. So their logic was, well, we didn't see radiation, therefore the smear factor must be, must be really big to account for no radiation. And they calculated the smear factor that would give you no radiation. And it went from our 10 to the minus 15th to uh, uh, 10 to the minus uh, 8th or 10 to the minus, yeah, 10 to the minus 8th, like an angstrom mm. or 10 to the minus 10th, excuse me. So, um, so uh, a smear factor of, of, depending on how you count, five orders of magnitude, three, four, five orders of magnitude larger. So they literally smeared the smear factor by three to, three to four orders of magnitude. And would, and that's just a nucleus. So if you can imagine the nucleus being in an angstrom, the whole atom would be microns. It, like it's as big as the whole cell, much, much bigger than a microtubule. So that made no sense at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, um, the, I'm not sure what they accomplished by doing that because it didn't really rescue the OSEOR. It was kind of an excuse for maybe why they didn't see it. And it didn't refute Penrose OR because it was based on this, this small uh, uh, separation, which should give you even more radiation. Um, so they weaponized it. They used it. They used the smear factor and applied it to Oracle R and said, and, and went into our, equa our equation that we developed in 1996 and substituted the, uh, the, the uh, uh, femtometer separation, uh, replaced that with angstrom uh, and then recalculated and got bizarre, crazy numbers like uh, in, in our in our approach, the uh, uh, 10 megahertz uh, uh, would require 10 uh, or 10, um, 10 megahertz would require 10 to the uh, 15th tubulins. And uh, in their approach that uh, or put it the other way around, 10 to the 15th tubulins would self collapse 10 to the minus seven seconds. In their mm -hmm. approach, 10 to the 15th tubulins would self collapse in 12 days. So having a conscious moment every 12 days yeah, yeah, is yeah. not that helpful, mm -hmm. especially if your predator prey uh, opponent is operating at megahertz. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it didn't really make any sense, but somehow they used that to blame us. They said, aha, that, they were a little bit clever and devious about it. They said, that disproves DP theory. It disproves Diossi mm. Penrose objective reduction. So, um, you know, that was that was sneaky. So they never like quite called out Orcoar per se. They were. Yeah, they kind of they were. They, yeah, they in the official paper, at least. Yeah. No, they didn't. And uh, and they were very clever about it. So I actually counted up in, in the three papers. Uh, uh, I'll tell you about the third in a second. Um, seven times they said uh, Orcoar based on DP theory had been refuted or was highly implausible. And twice they said, well, we haven't really ruled out Orcoar based on Penrose, uh, but just this, this variant. Essentially, they made up their own variant of Orcoar based on Diossi OR rather than Penrose OR and showed that it was wrong mm. and then somehow mm. blamed us. So mm. it was very unfair and, and devious. And uh, But you're right. They, they, they kind of sidestepped it. So if you read it to the letter of the law or whatever, no, they didn't, they didn't claim they, they refuted us, but they were kind of... It was kind of a bait and switch followed by a tarring with the same brush. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they kind of, it was like a shell game, uh, D-O-R, P-O-R, blah, blah, blah. Aha, they're both, they must both be wrong. And, you know, therefore, Orko wires refuted. Well, mm -hmm. it wasn't, but but they were very clever about it so they could w wiggle it. When I, when I called them on it, they said, well, look, here we said it was okay. I said, <laughs> yeah, but here, 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 and here, you said it wasn't okay. So, um, okay, that was that was the two papers, the experimental paper reporting from the Grand Sasso experiment, and then the theoretical 
uh, paper called uh, Consciousness or, or uh, Collapse of the Crossroads of Orco R and something. Okay, yeah, so then the third paper was a press release put out by FQXI, and they weren't as subtle or maybe as, as clever because their, the title of theirs was Collapsing the Leading Theory or Collapsing a Leading Theory for the Quantum Origin of Consciousness. Collapsing being a somewhat clever pun, mm -hmm. saying that our theory had collapsed or was collapsing or was collapsed by this refutation. And so their, you know, they, their headline was the punchline. And when you read the paper, it was all kind of wishy-washy and because they, they didn't really understand it that well. And they didn't, you know, make that strong a claim. They kind of also weaseled out. But the, the title of the, of the press release, you know, was was very was accusatory and claiming mm. that we had been refuted. So uh, that kind of stunk. And uh, I met one of the co-authors at the Banff meeting, Catalina Cursiano, a very nice uh, lady, uh, scientist. And uh, she kind of apologized and then she did a, an interview where she was much more um, mm. conciliatory and whatnot. But the damage has been done. Everybody's saying, hey, were you guys really refuted? And so, uh, like I said, we've been writing a response, but Roger's been reluctant because uh, you know, I put in some kind of, like I said, snotty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as I, as I, as I, I've been known to do. So, uh, yes, that's true. Uh, but I, but uh, uh, I may, I may just publish it. I'm going to check with them. I may just publish it myself. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah. stay tuned. Yeah, we'll stay tuned. All right, Stu. Well, thanks for sitting down with me. Um, yeah, I'll let you uh, get on with your day here. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure talking with you. Just always love hanging out and just getting to catch up. It's good so. to see you again, Justin. You've been a good guy over the years, and really, I appreciate your work in this field. And keep keep going. And I hope uh, I hope maybe you wind up at the University of Arizona. Who knows? Hey, maybe that could be fun. <laughs> All right. Thanks All right, a lot, Stu. Okay. Good seeing you. You too. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. Um, it was a great time chatting with Stuart. I look forward to hearing your comments on this video. So yeah, please open up the dialogue. If you have more information or knowledge about super radiance, super absorption, some of these other phenomenon like delayed luminescence, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts out there. A lot of this is new to me and I'm still learning a lot about these topics. So I look forward to talking to you again very soon.